for watching. My name is Michael Brock. I'm the senior pastor here at Third Presbyterian Church. Third Pres has been a part of the downtown Birmingham community since 1884, and we still today hold to the historic, classic Christian faith. We're glad you've been watching, but we would love to have you join us one Sunday in person. Please see our website for our Sunday morning service times, and I hope to meet you soon. Our scripture reading today for the sermon comes from Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, which is page number 941 in your pew Bibles. And while you're turning there, the children are free to be dismissed for the children's Bible lesson. I'm preaching through Romans these days. This is sermon number 18. It's the second sermon in this little section of Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. And last uh, Lord's Day, I gave you three theological terms uh, and looked at those because they're significant parts of this section of Scripture, which this section of Scripture really gets to the heart of what the gospel is. And today I'm going to give you three more theological terms um, one that's maybe a little bit of a fancy theological term, the other two not so much. But I want to explain a few more things to you from this passage because this passage is so key. Uh, Paul has already said in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And in that gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And then he spends the rest of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, and through verse 20 of chapter 3, not talking about this gospel where the righteousness of God is revealed, but why we need this gospel. And, it's, and he spends all those, all those verses, all those chapters talking about man's unrighteousness. And so then here he changes, um, changes tunes, changes things about, and we start to see God's righteousness and how it's revealed in the gospel. So that's what we're looking at today. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. <clears throat> but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Lord, please open our eyes now and enable us to behold wonderful things from this, your law. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I said that the theme from chapter 1, verse 16 is that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And I'm going to give you three questions that I'm going to try to answer with more theological type terms. 
But that's what we want to look at today. Three questions about this gospel that Paul uh, clarifies and, and says so wonderfully in these verses. I mentioned last week, I believe, that there was one minister who, in examining candidates to be in the ministry, to be pastors, to be ordained men, elders, and leaders in the church, he would ask them, can you work through and explain Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26? And if they could, he would pass them, consider them having, uh, you know, passed their exam. And if they couldn't, then, then his vote was not that they would be uh, ordained for the gospel ministry. So that's, that's how crucial this, these verses are. So there are three questions I want to ask about the gospel with some theological terms sort of as our answers. Number one, how is the gospel received? And just by the way, if you don't yet, I know lots of folks are kind of new to the church and new to Christianity. You may not even know what gospel is. One of the things that I did early in this sermon series was ask the congregation to ask folks, not fellow church members, but to ask folks, what is the gospel? And, you know, we got all kinds of answers. Well, the gospel is the truth. Uh, the gospel is a certain type of music. Um, uh, the gospel is the word and things like that. Well, the gospel, I'll just say it very plainly, is the good news of Jesus, life and death for you. The, the gospel is good news. That's what gospel means. Good news. And so the gospel, the good news is that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus has risen from the dead, that Jesus has died in your place and my place, and he lived a perfect, right, perfectly righteous life that you and I could never earn on our own, and he gives that to us. All that is wonderfully good news. That is the gospel. So the question number one today is, how is that gospel received? The answer is, very simply, by faith. And that's not really a very fancy theological term, but it's certainly a theological term by faith. Let's look at this again, beginning in verse 21. But, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That is, apart from your ability to keep the commandments, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith. In Jesus Christ for all who believe. And then verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. We'll get to that word in a minute. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. How's this gospel received? By faith. It's, it's, it's very simple in that sense. Faith is, is belief. It's trust. It's that in which you are confident. Now, again, it's not really a fancy theological term, but there are a, a couple of nuances that I want to make uh, in, in light of this word. First of all, many people believe that the mere fact of having just sort of a general faith and just some sort of general God um, checks the box for them. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm good in my spiritual life because I've, I've got faith. Um, well, that's called theism. And theism is a part of Christianity, but Christianity is so much more than that, belief in God. I mean, Muslims are theists. Jews are, are, are theists. Christians are theists. Biblical faith, though, is centered on Jesus and, and, and who He is. So that's one thing we need to keep in mind. The faith that's being spoken of here is not just this sort of um, ambiguous, um, just general 
belief in, 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 in a God out there. The second little nuance I want to point out. Many people see faith as, as a good deed that merits salvation. That Jesus does the work to rescue me from my sin and free me from the bondage of my sin, the slavery to sin. Jesus does that work, but, um, but I have to exercise my faith. And if I will do that enough, well enough, sincerely enough, well, then God will reward me with salvation. No, we can never. This is what verse 21 says. This righteousness from God is manifested apart from the law. There, there are no good deeds that we could ever do to merit salvation. Faith simply says, I'll take it. Faith says, yes. Faith says, I believe that. Uh, one, one writer put it this way. Suppose someone anonymously sent you a check for a million dollars. The money is yours if you want it, but you still must endorse the check. In no way can signing your name be considered earning the million dollars. The endorsement is a non-work. You can never boast about becoming a millionaire through sheer effort or your own business savvy. No, the million dollars was simply a gift and signing your name was the only way to receive it. Similarly, exercising faith is the only way to receive the generous gift of God. And faith cannot be considered a work worthy of the gift. So faith is not a type of good deed. Those are just a couple of little nuances. But here's the main thing that I want to say about faith. And I want to say it in a way that if you've been in the church, been in the church a long time, this is going to be very provocative. And so hang with me. We're not saved by our faith. We're saved by Christ. Faith is the instrument by which we grab hold of the Lord Jesus. But Jesus does the work. Jesus does the saving. Jesus took the penalty for our sin that we all deserve. He's the one who lived the righteous life that we could never earn on our own, which you have to have this righteousness to stand before God. And faith it grabs hold of that. It's faith that believes that. But it's not our faith that's the basis of our salvation. Jesus' person and work is the basis of our salvation. Faith is just the instrument. Jesus saves. My faith doesn't save. Faith is just the tool or the means by which I grab hold of Christ. But it's not my faith to save. Jesus does. Another way to say it, it's not that you believe that saves. It's what you believe and in whom you believe. What matters is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith. I'll say that again. What matters is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith. Am I trusting in my faith? Or am I trusting in the work of Christ? We can't have faith in our faith. That, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm saying here. You have faith in Christ. You, you can't have faith in your faith. And that's a beautiful thing, you understand. I mean, why our faith doesn't save us is beautiful because, you know, your faith is really great some days and it really stinks other days. You know, you wake up one morning, you wake up on the good side of the bed, you read your Bible, you have a little prayer time, and, and, you, and you, you feel very confident before God, you are assured of a good relationship with Him, and, and, and you're joyful that day. And then the next day, you wake up late on the wrong side of the bed, 
no time for anything, you know, with the Lord, any sort of quiet time with the Lord, and then you're you're going and and you start to question your relationship with God, you start to question whether you're really a Christian. That's that's the way it is in the Christian life. You have some good days and you have some bad days. And so if your faith is based on your faith, then you will always be moody. You'll always be unstable. You'll always be lacking assurance and and lacking confidence in your relationship with God. But since our faith is not what saves us, we can rest. We can have confidence. We can have assurance that the work of Jesus covers all my sins, my bad days. And, And I believe that. And some days I believe it really well, and some days maybe my belief is not that great. But thank the Lord, my salvation is not dependent on how well, how strong, I, how well I believe or how strong is my faith. Faith is key, but we can't have faith in our faith. We have faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Faith is just how we grab a hold of it. So that's how we receive the gospel, is by faith. Second. I'm trying to be a little more brief today. We do have communion today, so I'm tr- trying to work through our sermon here uh, with a little, little bit um, more conciseness than usual. But second question, what does the gospel mean? The gospel means propitiation. God's anger is taken away from us. God's anger is lifted off of us. And, and that's one of those you know, $3 theological words, propitiation. And you see it here in verse 25. I'll start there at verse 23 again. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom, good, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Propitiation means to turn away wrath. Propitiation means to satisfy anger. And what this passage and what the Bible teaches us and what is the essence of the Christian faith is that the blood of Jesus, the life and death of Christ, turns away God's wrath from being upon us, which is proper for it to be upon us because we're rebels at heart. We want to run our own lives. We don't want God to be in charge. We want to be in charge. And so it's proper that His wrath will be set upon us. The blood of Jesus washes that away. That's that's propitiation. That sin that is upon us... Uh, the, the anger of God that is rightly upon us is lifted from us. Now, would, some would say that this idea of God's wrath in Christianity is Christianity borrowing from ancient pagan myths, uh, ancient Greek myths or pagan religions, things like that, um, where God, there's a God who must be appeased. But a huge difference here is that the pagan gods are, are totally capricious, um, they're, they're, they're totally moody. They, they, you never know when they're going to fly off the handle. Um, the real God, the true God, the living God is never throwing a temper tantrum in his anger. His anger exists because sin exists. God hates sin because sin destroys. He hates it in me. He hates it in you. He hates it in the world. Because God created the world. God created people. He loves people. And therefore, He's going to hate whatever destroys people and destroys His creation. Now, a lot of times, um, folks are bothered by this. 
People want a loving God. Um, I don't want an angry God. My God would never do something like, you know, fill in the blank. But what I want to say today is that to, to pit anger against love is a false dichotomy. You can't do that. Because it's love that makes you angry at sin. Now granted, we have to be careful here when we, when we see anger in our own lives. Because we might be angry because we've, we've lost something. Or our reputation has been hurt. Or someone's taken, stolen some money from us. Or, or we're, we're angry just because we're inconvenienced. But it might also be love that makes you angry. I mean, you might be angry at alcohol and drugs because it's ruined your child's life and you love your child. God's anger always flows from His love. You've maybe heard the saying, anger is the opposite. I'm sorry, anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God is so angry because He's so filled with love and goodness. And He will not be indifferent. He will involve Himself in what is happening in my life, your life, in the world that He created and that He loves. And primarily, He involves Himself in the world by providing for sin, propitiation for His anger to be removed from us by the blood of Christ. So how's the gospel received by faith? What does the gospel mean? Propitiation. Finally, number three, what does the gospel prove? And these are a couple of words here at the end of this section, the last verse. Just and justifier. And that's what the gospel proves. Just and justifier. When God put forward Jesus as a propitiation... By his blood, it says in verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. Now, just and justifier is, again, it's not really so much a fancy theological term, but it's an interesting uh, seeming juxtaposition. Because on the one hand, what you see is God being just in, in that he demands a penalty for sin. He exacts a penalty for sin. He doesn't just wink and say, you know, well, I tell you what, let's just pretend that ever happened. That's not the way he works. That's not just. I saw just here recently in Birmingham City, a, a, a judge was, uh, I think, resigned because this particular judge had received several ethics um, slaps on the wrist and admonitions and things of this nature because a judge has to be uh, a righteous judge and do what is right and proper. And so God is, is a just judge. He demands a penalty for sin. He doesn't just say, I will, I will just let that one slide. Don't worry about it. No, that's not the way he works. He's just. But on the other hand, what you see is that God himself pays the penalty for our sin. He pays it. He doesn't make you pay it. He doesn't make me pay it. He suffers the debt that we owe. So by demanding a penalty for our sin and also providing the righteousness we need, He is both just and the justifier. 
you know, just a few moments ago, you just prayed. You know, if you're Presbyterian, you're used to praying it. If, if, you're, if you haven't grown up in the Presbyterian church and it's taking you a little while to get used to saying debts and debtors rather than trespasses and those who trespass against us. And some of you who are not maybe here every week, you said trespasses. You're like, wait, they're saying something different. So it takes a little while to get used to that. I understand. But we just prayed that. Uh, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. When we, when we pray forgive us our debts, this is us recognizing that we have sinned against God. We've stolen from Him His glory, His righteousness. We, have, we, we owe Him a debt. Uh, it's us. When we pray that, we're, we're recognizing that we've robbed God. When we pray forgive us our debts, we, we're recognizing that we have sinned against Him greatly. And listen, when we sin against someone or someone sins against us, there is a debt that is created. And there's, there are really only two ways to pay a debt. Um, if someone sins against you, you can make them pay the debt. And you make them pay the debt by hurting them in some way. Um, we, we do that by trying to make them suffer. They've made us suffer. They've taken something from us. They've hurt us, sinned against us. They've made us suffer. And so we try to make them suffer. Usually by hurting their reputation is the way we'll go about that. Of course, the problem with that is that it hardens your heart. It, it makes you hard. It, your bitterness grows in that environment. But there's another way to pay the debt. And that is you can pay it yourself. And you do that when you bite your tongue. You do that when you don't go on a campaign to defend yourself. You do that when you sit still and wait on the Lord to, to vindicate and make things right. And when you do that, love grows. Sensitivity to the Holy Spirit grows. Fruits of the Spirit grow in your life. Someone has to pay every debt. You know, you, we see this in the world today. You know, there are laws being passed in different, I guess, municipalities and states where, like shoplifting, if you if you if you steal from a store under a certain dollar amount, you're not arrested, you're not prosecuted, whatever. You just walk out the store. But over that, then you then you have to pay. Well, listen, every no matter the, the smallest thing that's stolen from a store. It, that's a debt that's created. You've robbed them from that store. You've stolen from them. Uh, so who pays? Well, a lot of times you think, well, the store pays for that. Well, no, you pay for it. <laughs> I pay for it. Because they, they jack up the prices to pay for these other people who are stealing stuff from the store. Somebody's got every debt has to be paid. That's the way it always works. Someone always has to pay for wrongs to be righted. And so Paul says that God is the justifier. It means he paid my debt. He suffered in my place. He went to the cross for me. He paid your debt. Jesus on the cross... I mean, it, it was in many ways a legal transaction where debt is paid. But it was, of course, it's also a, a public demonstration of God's righteousness. 
And it's a public demonstration of his love. You know, in the Bible, God is the one who always provides the sacrifice. He's the one who always um, sheds blood. Adam, Adam tried to per- cover himself after his sin. The Lord says, no. And he, he sacrifices the animal to cover uh, Adam and Eve. Abraham, Isaac says to him, where's the lamb? God will provide. Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, we people, we don't come up with a strategy to manipulate or try to placate God with a sacrifice of our own choosing. No, in love, God provides to us and and for us precisely what His justice demands. And you know, I mentioned as we close here, and I mentioned earlier that people don't want a God of wrath. They want a God of love, a God who affirms, a God who accepts people. Here's the question for those of us who have created that sort of God in our minds. What does it cost your God to love and accept everybody? Only the real, true God, the God of the Bible Himself, pays the penalty you and I owe, and it cost Him His life. It cost Him the Son of God. He doesn't demand our own blood. He doesn't demand our children's blood. He shed His own blood. He shed His own child's blood. The total opposite of paganism. Total, total opposite of barbarism. It is, it is love come down. God being just. And a loving justifier of one who has faith in Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled before you today by the fact that we who could never pay the debt we owe have had it paid on our behalf. And it wasn't just a small little um, $5 debt. It cost the Son of God His life. And I pray that we would ever live humbly before our great King who became a servant that we might be lifted, we might be freed from the bondage of sin, we might be have the guilt of our sin removed from us and your anger taken away from us and your love put upon us. We thank you for that, O oh God, and, and pray that we would keep that in mind this week. And, and as we sing this final hymn, Lord, I pray as we... As, as we sing about and think about the, the royal genealogy of Jesus, how it describes a rose sprouting from the stem of the tree of Jesse, that we would think and be thankful and humble before this Lord Jesus, one who is descended from Jesse, the father of King David. Oh God, work in our souls and hearts. 
humbling us and making us thankful people before you. Even now we pray through Jesus. Amen.